You're listening to Worlds We Got This, brought to you by Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is James Bagley from King's College London and you heard there the choir of King's College London singing Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols. They very kindly, the choir here at King's, very kindly have given us a recording of a performance they gave at the King's Chapel. Obviously, because of these COVID-restricted times, they weren't able to perform to an audience, and it was all kind of COVID-secure. But we thought we'd bring you a little bit of festive cheer at the beginning of the podcast, and we're also going to be, uh, they're also going to be playing us out at the end of today's podcast. Lucy, we've got a really exciting guest on today's podcast. Can you tell us about who it is? Yes, well, we're certainly ending the year on a high note. Uh, a few days ago, James was able to interview Dame Louise Casey for the final episode of the podcast. Yeah, it was really fascinating. I think, as you say, it felt like we were ending on a high this year because she was such a fantastic guest. Dame Louise Casey is someone I definitely really respect and someone you know we talk about on this podcast some really tricky issues and challenges and as listeners will hear Dame Louise Casey has taken on some of the toughest challenges in government and I think it was just fascinating to hear the way she approaches them uh, the way she deals with people and also some of the insights into things like homelessness uh, social breakdown and also most recently looking at the issues relating to COVID-19 So we're really pleased to have her on the podcast. Um, A big thank you to her for appearing. I think we want to say a special thank you to everyone that's listened and who's sent their feedback and who shared episodes all year. It's been really fantastic doing this podcast. It's given us a chance to bring you some of the best research and ideas from not just here at King's, but around the world. And we know it's been a very tough year. We want to say a special thank you for listening. We hope this podcast has helped at times. Um, It certainly helped us. Um, I think I could speak for myself. Lucy is nodding. Um, uh, And so, yeah, we just want to say a special thank you. And we hope you're staying safe. And um, yeah, so here's the episode with Dame Louise Casey. Thanks, Lucy. Enjoy. Today, our guest is Dame Louise Casey. Dame Louise has spent over 20 years working in and out of government here in the UK taking on some of the toughest challenges along the way, from rough sleeping to antisocial behaviour, from struggling families to child poverty. Dame Louise has never shied away from a challenge. And today is no different. Uh, She helps launch the COVID-19 community campaign with the aim of making sure that no one goes hungry this winter. Dame Louise Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, James. That's great. I should uh, I should get that. We were just talking before and I should get the gushing bit out of the way, which is that I actually met Dame Louise a summit that the uh, that King's helped organise between the UK and Australia governments. And uh, and I think they say in show business, never meet your kind of heroes. And in policy and research, it's the same unless they're Dame Louise Casey. And they are, in fact, as lovely as they appear on TV. So oh, that is I, <laughs> only one me. That's the thing, James. I can't really, you know, I'm not great at all that changing faces business I'm afraid yeah she keeps it real for the fans there we go (laughs) (laughs) um 
so I, I, I just wanted to kick off really. I mean, one of the reasons we want to invite you on, this podcast is all about tackling big challenges. And this is the final episode of the year, on inaugural year. And I guess one of the things looking back on your career, you know, tw- over 20 years now, working in and out of government, is that you, what's telling is that you've taken on really difficult challenges, or you've always been kind of focused on these, these issues that have troubled governments over um, of both colours. Do you sort of see yourself as a, uh, as someone that is focused on solving problems? So do you see that as your main role, I guess? Um, yes, I think so. Um, and unless for, I'm less interested in the kind of policy of how you do problems and more interested in eradicating the problems. Does that make sense? So I'm quite cause driven. Um, you know, I'm like a do-gooder writ writ large, (laughs) (laughs) uh, dangerously do-gooding. And, um, I, I think that's more what what probably gets. So I, and I worked for 10 years in the charitable sector or not-for-profit, as they call it mm. nowadays, um, like as a volunteer in a night shelter. And then, you know, by day I was a benefits, somebody that processed welfare benefits in what was then called the DHSS, the Department of Health and Social Security in Brixton. And I started to see that the benefit changes that the government had then brought in just had such a major impact, James, on like 16 to 18 year olds. And then they did something awful to 18 to 25 year olds. And I started volunteering in a night shelter because I couldn't, I couldn't kind of live with myself. Um, And, you know, we we went, this is back in the the 80s, you know, in that that dark, that dark time um, in our history. Um, so, yeah, I, I think. And then what happened was, you know, uh, when the Labour administration got in in 97, they had a manifesto commitment to sort out uh, rough sleeping. And I applied for the job. I was deputy director of shelter and got the job. And then I sort of did 20 years then of different Whitehall jobs. And as soon as I escaped, somebody would call me and go, oh, the prime minister's a bit worried about this. What do you think? And then it's a kind of. Yes, I'll help, but on these terms, that's kind of how it's been. I've got this slogan in my head, which is when really important people with money and ability to change laws phone you, you never say no, you say yes, but can we do it this way? And I'd say that that would probably be my only application of process is to say yes, but can we do this? That I mean, you mentioned... Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, it, and it's really, as I say, you sort of go back and it's not the normal... I guess career of a civil servant in 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 so many ways. And I going back to you mentioned there in Brixton and being at the coalface. Do you think that was really important in how you approached kind of solving issues in government? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, I would say, I would say that throughout all of those roles, whether you call them czars or whatever, mm-hmm. I had a very strong connection to the doing side of it. So I spent a lot of time actually in projects, in communities, with residents. Um, you know, I, I remember once being ferried in a transit van from the train station to uh, a New Deal for Communities area. And I was literally bar charting the number of kids that I thought were underage and should be in school. And I was like, by the time I got off the bus, I was fit to be tied. Um 
and you know and I just literally started there and said so listen I've just seen you know x number of kids who look to me like they're school age and they're wandering around your estate what's going on you know I'm not interested in the red carpet treatment um and and didn't get it really on the whole I think people kind of respect just honesty the thing is James I'm just very honest and very upfront and and people you know I think you can work with that can't you and you can disagree as well so people will often disagree you know they they think they think some of the things that I think and say are wrong and they're not they're not afraid to say it um and I that's great I'd rather you know transparency at all times really and and you've you've said before about different issues including homelessness that some of it is is actually not complicated and 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 I think that's quite rare to hear because we like to dress up problems as very complicated instead of just saying, well, actually, some of this is is like blindingly obvious. And do you think that's like an important thing to remind people, both politicians, but also the general public? I think, I mean, yes, is, is the answer to that. I think yeah. you're 100% right. And I think that people and policy people, all of us make things look and feel really hard and actually the thing about government is nothing is impossible most things are possible and you know you think about the year that we've just lived through the year of the pandemic and I know we're not through it yet and the implications ramifications of it we will live with for years but you know for the last decade the number of people sleeping on the streets and the number of families and temporary accommodation has gone in the wrong direction the numbers have gone up and up and up and up and up and this summer, certainly on the street homelessness side, bang, we just mm. brought it down to bar- barely anything again. And I'm really hoping that something like that just shows people that these things that you think are totally impossible are possible. Um, I mean, it was a bloody huge sticking plaster, right? And But I'll take a sticking plaster over nothing, um and and I think that's that that's the other thing it wasn't a strategy to end rough sleeping it was a sticking plaster to protect people's lives and the the follow-on was that we got the numbers down here very very significantly and across all of the nations of the United Kingdom I mean you you mentioned there rough sleeping and obviously for listeners uh that don't know you were head of the rough sleeping unit under Tony Blair in that time managed to cut rough sleeping by by over two thirds and 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 actually we had one of the lowest rough sleeping rates in Europe or did we have the lowest you, you can correct me on that one but I mean at 20 years on shelter is pointing out that I mean I think it was 2019 over 280,000 people sleeping rough that is obviously rising because of COVID-19 in a simple question where did we go wrong and and what lessons can we learn from that period that you had as head of rough sleepers unit, what what can we take from that that we could be implementing now? So something like that, I think the 280 figure actually includes people in temporary accommodation, sofa surfing, it's a broader picture, but the point you're making is completely valid and correct. And I think the thing about some social problems is it's like switching a light on and off. And, you know, so you really can make a policy lever if you choose to do so. And I think what happened, I mean, since 2010, and it is literally 2010, you start to see the numbers go in the wrong direction. Um, You know, right now, uh, you know, as we head into our first and God willing last COVID Christmas, the number of children 
uh, in temporary accommodation, which sounds all right, doesn't it? But it is not all right. You know, a lot of it is converted office blocks with basically families living in a room, one room on, on their own, the size of a car parking space in a supermarket. That's how bad it is, James. And also, you know, the numbers of people... I mean, we had a big operation during COVID-19, but if you if, if that hadn't happened, the numbers of people on the streets had gone up. So I think, you know, the thing I think about rough sleeping and the way that the team, the it, A, it was really collaborative. So, you know, I was poached and gamekeeper. I was of the charitable sector and I went in to uh, government and therefore had the uh, ability to be able to speak both languages I think that we had a government that was determined to do something about it. And that's really important, um, including a prime minister. But more importantly, we had a strategy. So, you know, I know this sounds trite, but I often use the I mean, this is how I got the job, actually. So in, in the interview, I was so nervous and I didn't quite know how to pitch myself. And I was like, you know, yeah, I was you know, deputy director of shelter. I was quite strong, opinionated, and not that polished, frankly. And so I said, I literally panicked and said, look, this is like an overflowing bathtub. This is how you have to think about the problem. And they all looked at me and said, what the hell is she on, this kid that's come in here? And I said, look, it's like an overflowing bathtub. Basically, when a bathtub is overflowing, you run into the bathroom. The first thing you do is you switch the taps off. The second thing you do is you reach in and you, um, you take the plug out so the water can go away. And you cause a bit of ruction when you put your arm in because more water comes out for a bit. So it's not a straightforward process. And then you do a cleanup job. And they looked at me confused. And I said, the thing we never do is we don't switch the taps off. So during the Rough Sleepers Initiative, I could tell you which prison in London discharged on a Friday afternoon their prisoners and which uh, prison in London discharged on a Monday morning prevention switching the taps off is one of the most fundamental parts of solving any problem and in homelessness you you've actually got people who you can talk to about where they were the night before the week before the month before the years before now we can predict that people who are homeless are more likely to come from certain kind of demographic backgrounds social and economic backgrounds we can predict all of that but we can also predict what happened to them in the week in the month before they became homeless and you can do something about that and and that's what's been lost i think a lot of that prevention work which people don't really it's not visible and people don't think about doing it and so the old age adage of prevention is better than cure government often does cure and it often looks at symptoms and it and it deals with the symptoms. It doesn't deal with the underlying causes. And you could say the same about health, couldn't you? I mean, you know, we call the NHS the National Health Service. It's actually the National Hospital Service. You know, we're not that great, are we, at either preventing the reasons why people end up in hospital. And we're pretty bad at how we deal with elderly people and support them in their homes so that, you know, they don't fall and end up in hospital. Um, and, you know, the, the rest is history about COVID and, you know, people really struggling in care homes and care homes being without doubt. I mean, to describe them as a poor relation is just, it, it doesn't give way to the absolute, the, the, the travesty, which is our social care system really. And, and what we, what we put care workers through. Um, yeah. I mean, do you, do you think that one of the things that, that needs to be defeated or, or kind of challenged more often is that it isn't the economy versus rough sleeping? 
kind of rough sleeping policy or supporting rough sleepers, a lot of these interventions, because it can feel like, and, and you'll hear this from the public and maybe in the media that the economy is not doing well. And so we're just going to, we're just going to assume that rough sleeping is going to go up or COVID's here. So, you know, we can't, uh, we can't shut down the economy because uh, we can't shut down society because it'll affect the economy. But actually, these these aren't trade-offs. They're actually they go hand in hand. And do you think that's something that like needs to be challenged more often? Definitely. I think that's a really interesting insight and question, actually, because I think there is a school of thought which basically says, you know, if as the economy grows and as you push on employment and all of those things, so the world will get better. Well, last time I checked, that doesn't get your tide of the people at the lower end of the economy up. So right now, at the end of 2020, leave aside the pandemic, we know that the biggest growth in the last decade has been working poor. So you used to think, I thought I did, my parents did, you work your way out of poverty. That's not doable anymore. And so I think that, and let's switch to rough sleeping, which actually is is, is not a complicated problem. It's one of the more straightforward policies, actually, I've been responsible for, which is the thing I said to the government at the end of 2019 is, look, yes, your numbers are really high, like you're getting your annual street count double check point is at 5000. That's a really, really big figure when, you know, my last street count was 534. Your street count is 5000. So, you know, take a long, hard look at the numbers. But what's really interesting within that number, which the economy will not help with, is that in London, we've had 2,000 people who've been out on the streets for more than two years. Now, if you've been out on the streets for more than two years, you're not exactly employable, right? You're very likely to have drug, alcohol and mental health problems. And some of the people that you will actually see around Kings, you know, they are people who've been out for a while and, and actually the economy won't lift them off the street. So you need a different type of intervention, um, and I think it's lazy policymaking as well to just be a bit challenging that, you know, the economy is all no, it just means people that have got good educations get better jobs. It means people that therefore come from better, uh, more socially and economically wealthy uh, move further up the ladder. You know, social mobility shouldn't be about moving the middle to the top. It should be about reaching to the very, very left behind or kept behind, as one guy said to me. Uh, last year you went you know I hate being called left behind I'm not effing left behind I'm kept behind and I thought that was I mean it was like a wow okay mate yeah you're right and actually he is right because at some level James governments choose we as a society choose what we do and how we spend money and we know as we come out the other side of the pandemic yeah everybody's should be worrying about 18 to 25 year olds they're going to be so so affected but imagine if you're an 18 to 25 year old in Redka or Middlesbrough or Hull or you know Kirklees you know that isn't you know like the economy yeah. getting back on its feet let, let, next year isn't isn't going to help those folk and they don't have hope and that's the thing that government needs to bring is it needs to bring hope um, and hope for everybody not just the people that can afford to be hopeful um sorry i'm talking too much no 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 not at all i mean that's the whole idea of the podcast talk 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 (laughs) (laughs) so 
I guess, I guess turn into communicating ideas and 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 convincing people. You're obviously not a politician, and it's a very different role. But I was actually I was speaking to some students about communicating their research and their and we used one of your a clip of you that went kind of viral on Newsnight of you talking about the Marcus Rashford campaign, and you pointed out to a minister that you seem to know and actually were willing to respect and and fully kind of say, look, we've worked on these issues before. And the reason I used it to show the students is because you depoliticized it. You said, look, the evidence is there that this relatively small intervention in terms of cost has huge benefits. And we know that was tons of research that has shown that preschool meals and early years intervention has huge benefits, not just for the individuals, but actually for society know not costing the state more in later life but and and this podcast we have lots of guests come on talk about great ideas but do you think government's willingness to just take clear evidence based on research and outcomes as opposed to taking a kind of ideological view has got worse over time in the in the time that you've been working or do you think it's just always been the way that, that you're kind of up against? It's always a balance between the, the political ideology of the day and people like yourself and others, researchers coming up with the evidence. Do you, do you think that's worsened or, or do you think it's just always been this? Well, that, so I think the, 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 the thing that I said to um, number 10 and, and actually I said it to the prime minister over the summer when I was working on uh, the rough sleeping stuff is that actually the the gift of having a big majority is you actually have the chance to dig deep into policy and what works and what doesn't work. And one of the things that the Labour, because Labour kind of came so close to winning in 92, but didn't win, they then had five years between 92 and 97 to really get their act together. Uh, which is quite interesting. And the the thing that they did was they set up something called the Social Exclusion Unit. Um, And the Social Exclusion Unit was really interesting because it's a bit like a policy institute out of Kings, but in the heart of government. And what it did was then look very carefully at issues that actually weren't necessarily that popular, like homelessness, uh, like uh, reducing the risk of reoffending, uh, the treatment of kids in care, um, and I think mental health, they looked at a mental health in young people. So they took some of the issues that wouldn't necessarily be obvious to the public and that they didn't vote for, but actually are all issues that actually are really important to solve. And they also did New Deal for Communities and Neighbourhood Renewal. And all of that came out of quite a weighty and collaborative policy process. And one of the things they asked me to do, uh, this government, which 20 years later, asked me to look at rough sleeping, because when they talked to me and I was saying, listen, guys, you're in the wrong place. They got me in because basically, you know, I, I was handled. It was a lovely moment in my career to be on the receiving end of being handled as opposed to being the handler. And I think it knocked them for six. I just sat and said, listen, I know that I'm in here because I, I criticised you and it went, you know, went in the Times leader. And, you know, the hard, you know, I'm afraid that you're not in the right place on rough sleeping and it's not a thoughtful and strategic approach that you're taking. And, you know, thanks very much for having me in. But I will continue to say what I think is 
is right. So, you know, you're not going to, at which point they wanted me to help them solve for our sleeping. And I said, no, you need to do a piece of work that looks at what are the drivers of rough sleeping now? Who are the people that are sleeping rough? And what do the folk who, you know, the agencies and the organisations think is the solution? And do you have the structures right in order to solve it? And that's a piece of work that needs to be done. Otherwise, you're just going to continue putting money into something that you're not solving. You're just, you're alleviating some suffering. I'll take all of it. You know, don't stop spending your money on it, but you're not solving the problem. You're just taking action. And I think that's the really, really interesting thing. And my challenge to a lot of people in the policy and research world is they do a lot of looking and a lot of explaining, but they don't actually think, how do you solve a problem? And I think that's that's the challenge, I think. Um, and I think I think so uh, evidence, though, some things are just so blindingly obvious. So, you know, it was the generals after the Boer War uh, that decided we should do something about poor children's nutrition because they realised because of the Boer War and we were heading into the First World War that basically men couldn't run with a bayonet. They weren't strong enough. They weren't tall enough. They weren't thick enough. You know, they weren't, I don't mean thick in the brain, I mean bulky. Um, and so they they basically persuaded that government to do, it wasn't called free school meals, but it was like nutrition for the poor. And so it meant that by the time they got to the First World War, they had many more men to throw into battle and get killed as it happened. Um, but they were body ready for it. So you know, that tells us something, doesn't it? That actually, you know, there are some slam dunker moments. It's a bit like I said to Gordon Brown once, and he won't mind me saying this, that, um, you know, the the problem I have with child tax credits is if that's your only lever to sort out poverty, it's not going to work because essentially the the men in the household can still drink that uh, that that credit away and it doesn't get near the children so if you're like many politicians either like Blair did law for him everything was about law it was about putting law through parliament and for Gordon everything was fiscal it was about you know using fiscal measures to make change and actually culture behavior and lots of these very challenging problems need both of those probably sometimes not always but need other interventions as well. And, and I think that's what's hard for politicians to get their head round. I mean, you mentioned there, I mean, one of the things you went on to work on was the Respect Task Force and looking, and then your later work with in, in David Cameron's government, you know, working with families at the very fringes of society, struggling with some of the toughest problems. You know, those issues cross, they don't, they, they don't respect Whitehall boundaries and they don't respect research boundaries or understanding of different issues. I mean, I was... Today program this morning, there was a, a, a young woman on there talking about her experience of being in, in care and, and child services. Um, and you, you could almost, hearing her speak, you could hear her pass through the many systems of government. Do you think that this government has not quite understood yet that these issues do need to be raised up at a kind of number 10 level and that they need to cross across departments and that someone needs to kind of take hold of that and lead um, on these kind of tough issues, many of which you've you've tackled in your your career. Yes, I think this government hasn't quite seized uh, the way that you would need to look at some of these cross cutting issues, um, and it's not an easy thing to do, James. That's that that's the other thing. So, you know, I was I was 
having a bit of a giggle the other night and saying one of the first meetings around the, what was called by the Conservatives the Troubled Families Programme, which was a yes but moment. It was like, yes, I'll do it, but the cohort of families has to look like this. They have to be at the sort of, uh, poor end of, 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 of the economy. And um, the first meeting, I was sat there, you know, around the cabinet table and every minister turns up with his or her lines to take. And the lines to take, you know, one will say, well, no, I'm doing an awful lot about the 120,000 troubled families, David. I'm, you know, I have a knife crime strategy. And then somebody from DFE will say, yes, I'm doing an awful lot about troubled families, David, because I've got, you know, a nutrition programme going on in all of these schools. And then somebody else will pitch up from the Department of Health and say, you know, we've got... I don't know, GP plus happening in some of these communities and therefore we're we're on it. And so everybody's doing something. They're not just solving the problem. And, and that's what's really hard because you then have to go and get money out of all of those departments to spend on a cross-departmental budget. And I think without Jeremy Hayward, we wouldn't have got that money. We got half a billion for the Troubled Families Programme, which in, in the middle of a parliament and without a spending review was pretty unheard of. Um, and then I had to have a showdown with Steve Hilton, actually, which I'm, you know, was an extraordinary moment because, you know, he was quite a loud character. And we had literally a showdown in Downing Street where he said, you know, I want to give all of, you know, the, the money me and Jeremy have bloody got. <laughs> he then decided he wanted to give it all to some private sector organisation that did work. You know, he, he felt that the answer, because he had another czar, a woman, I've forgotten her name now, and so, you know, it wasn't her fault. And I was like, well, you can stick your troubled families program then. It's like, if this doesn't go through local government, I'm not doing it. It's like, you know, I'll do this. But I was really clear. I'm accountable for this to the public, to the PAC. It's like I have to go for mm. all public accounts committees and justify my program as if I'm a minister. So I'm not taking it from some you know bloke that knows nothing about the lives of these families. Absolutely nothing and yet is in such a phenomenal position anyway that, I mean, you know, I won that battle and the rest, as they say, is history. But those are the sorts of things that come up all the time when you're trying to tackle causes and you can get really sidetracked by good stuff as well. And, and that, you know, one of the best things that came out of the Troubled Families Programme was something that also happened under Labour in family intervention, which is one family, one worker, one plan. And the one plan i.e. one person in charge, was the most difficult thing to arrive at because the, the sort of what I've just described in Whitehall also happens, which means the lives of young women like you've just described are just passing through the system without somebody gripping it and gripping the system and almost gripping the child and working out what would get them out of that experience. So one of the things I've always had trouble with is the in and out in and out of care so we take children out we put them back we take them out we put them back and that's the destroyer really and what we don't do is we assess the family but we don't really get stuck in and drive up capability because the system is frightened to protect the child and therefore we assess and we don't intervene. And the, the, the reason that family intervention is one, costly, and two, works, is because it's such an intense relationship between the worker and the family. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, and, and actually, that finally, the, uh, the really interesting thing is that 
we spent quite a lot of money on the evaluation and the first evaluation six reports and one of those reports was is it the troubled family's work that has changed the family or is it other factors like the economy and it was inconclusive and um you know i wasn't in charge at that point i had no control over that research and how it was published but it came out as if it because it was new gov you know teresa had taken control by then so it was sort of published badly really without any explanation attached to it which made people think it had failed and actually the next set of evaluation i think by the same people proved that that intervention does work and it is yeah. that intervention and that's the only one in my career where i think has been so so looked at so carefully but at one level sometimes i wonder like it's it's you know stating the bleeding obvious you know i did wonder about setting up a website when i uh, when i left the civil service and i just thought you know state the bleeding stating the bleeding obvious.com you know <laughs> i wasn't sure i was sophisticated enough to come up with you know the type of lingo you need really it was very funny we sort of get a Dame Louise Casey doll that we could give to ministers that you just pull and it says state the bleeding obvious in whatever whatever area they're working. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Steve Hilton's on Fox News now. So funny, funny, funny how things are. And Anne was a, I think he's a major Trump supporter. I mean, he's totally lost it. Anyway, I probably should say all of those things. Um, uh, but it's so important that you mentioned about that one one point of access to government, and that that clearly is important. And Jeremy Haywood, and and obviously left an immense legacy, and 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 how important it is to have those kinds of people in government is is clearly critical. And, and um, it's really interesting in the. I I took him actually to meet some families, and he was just really awkward. Um, you know, it wasn't his comfort zone. And he referred back to it many years later as one of the most important moments in his career because he saw just the insight into the complications of people's lives, but also that they were good people. You know, the the thing I think we forget often is that no mum wants to be a bad mum, right? No, No dad, actually, really wants to be a bad dad. You know, people that commit domestic violence they get there because up to the age of eight, they've witnessed it. It's, it, it, it. it's passed on from generation to generation, in my view. And what we as a society have to do is choose when we intervene to actually help people to help themselves. Um, and, and, and that's what a lot of, you know, the privilege I've had, James, to be honest, in all of these different jobs is being able to see some of that and just witness people in public service who are amazing. I mean, some of the workers out there are just amazing. And, you know, I was glad that Jeremy was able to see them, the the mums and the workers. One of them called uh, a worker. So we used to call them family intervention workers. And she smiled and she looked over at me and went, she's my family interference worker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I just thought, job done. My work here is done. My work here is done. I, t- I texted Jeremy Hayward and went, I want to be called your chief in- interference worker from here on in. <laughs> it's a good title. It's a good title. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned earlier, you you, you haven't stopped. You, you're, still, you're still taking on challenges and, and you've launched this week the COVID community campaign. Um, and you've mentioned several times over the last few weeks speaking about this, that it's it's really tough out there for families and that that really needs to be stressed. 
first of all, how bad is it right now? And, and, and how bad is it going to get next year? Well, thank you for uh, mentioning the COVID community um, campaign, .co.uk. Um, all donations gratefully received. The, the thing is, I think it's really awful. And I think that we can't see it because loads of people are working in the, in their, in their own homes, as it were. But if you just take one borough in London, Barking and Dagnum, they had 13,000 people on universal credit in March. They now have 34,000 people on universal credit as of October. That number's going up since October, not down. And on top of that, they were one of the local authorities in the country, like all of us, that was watching what Rishi Sunak was going to say about furlough and furlong. And um, because 40 percent of the rest of their working population are furloughed. So you're looking at one local authority that's not at the richest, neither is it at the poorest uh, in, in the country where actually it's dire and I think that what I didn't want and what I don't want is that we, you know, get to this time next year and somebody writes a report telling us how terrible it was for families and for for people. And I, I think those sorts of statistics scare me. And I met a woman at a food bank. I, w- I said, can I carry help carry your shoppings? She'd had to get a mate to give her a lift to the food bank because she has no transport. Um, as I put this, I said, what's going, what, you know, what, what brings you here then? And basically earlier this year, both her and her fellow were furloughed. They couldn't, they could barely afford life when they were both working full time. So to drop down by 20% was like, it's, it sent them to the food banks. He then leaves, at which point she has to go on universal credit. And she had to wait eight and a half weeks before any money came in through universal credit. And that to me is what we're looking at because of the pandemic. So I think James, before the pandemic, things weren't great. You know, let, let's be honest here. We've had a rise in the number of people using food banks for a reason. Um, you know, the, the 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 kind of that perfect storm of cuts to public services. You know, cuts to local authorities down by I don't know sixteen billion or something like that. If you layer on top of that the sort of cuts to individual benefits, uh, which over a course of, of, of a decade means that some people are now on the same benefit level that they would have been in 1990. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at, I think, something like a 29 billion cut in terms of welfare spend. And this same group of people is now that is therefore growing couldn't afford life before those cuts. And now, obviously, in the last decade, the cost of living has gone up. Put the pandemic in the middle of that. And that's why you're seeing this extraordinary rise in homelessness, both street, but also importantly, family homelessness. And why you're seeing this extraordinary uplift in people turning to universal credit. And, you know, there are some really simple things that the government could do. You know, A, don't get into a fight with a footballer over free school meals. That's a bit daft but it's also the wrong place for you to be. But, you know, we could suspend the fact that you don't get any money in universal credit for five weeks. And if you do, you you have to borrow it, which means over 60% of people are having deductions to their benefit, which is also, remember, incredibly low back to 1990. So I feel, 
you know, we've, so I feel there are some short term things and that's why I want to try and raise some money and raise some food and those sorts of things with the COVID community campaign. But as we come out of the pandemic, the, what we really need is, you know, I'm in like, let's have a Royal Commission, let's, uh, you know, let's get the brainiest and cleverest people together. Let's get the economists alongside, you know, chief do-gooders and work out how we make sure that this storm that has affected all of us, those of us in the better boats will sail through it. Those of us in terrible boats have actually sunk. And so how do we get to the people that have been sunk? And society can never be too far apart. You know, there's always this, we all know life's unfair. We all know that some people are richer than others. We know that, we live with that, that's fine. When it gets to a point that that tenuous link is broken, then you're in a really difficult place as a society. And I think, you know, I was very struck by some research that came out last week to back up a campaign that said most of the public would donate to make sure people could could have a good Christmas. You know, we're a really kind country. We have a long history in charity and philanthropy, more than many countries around the world. And I think both the government needs to know that and own it. And I think, you know, right now, I just feel we need kindness to get us through what is a bloody awful time, but more awful for some than others. Yeah, it's so important. And and I should say we will include all the links to the COVID community campaign in the show notes. So everyone that can can make a contribution should. And it's a really important campaign. Um, as you say, we, there's going to be a lot of tough time. It's a tough time for a lot of families and it's going to be tough next year. And we, we know we need to look after one another. It's so important. So finally, Dame Louise Casey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's it, it's a pleasure. I'm, uh, I believe at some point they made me a visiting professor, which has to be one of the most extraordinary things for somebody like me. Girl from Nowhere is now a visiting professor at uh, the, the Policy Institute at King's. Not bad, James. Very happy. Very happy to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Prof. (laughs) You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Wall. Thank you.